Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical, emotional, spiritual well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that we humans are tribal animals and that we live together when we live together in small enough groups that we know each other by name or at least by face. We tend to be collaborative, cooperative, congenial, and we love doing things together, all kinds of things, whether it's a sewing circle or a shooting club or a, a, a golf game or fishing, or, but mostly we love sitting around eating together. That's who we are. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that there's a small percentage of us, small but powerful, who are very different who are predators, who would subjugate us, who would not have us be the free people that we are and the cooperative people we are and the collaborative people we are. They would have us be their subjects to do their bidding. And so I ask you, those listening, who have the privilege to be spending this time listening, as I sit, as you do, with my friends, and I hear the topics of conversation, and I'll drop a name, some names here on purpose. I was with Governor Jerry Brown at dinner the other night, and, mm. and Will Marshall, the, uh, the CEO and one of the founders of Planet Labs that you can look into. And I hear them talking about important topics, climate change, nuclear proliferation, the terrible things going on in, in, in Israel and, and in Ukraine. And you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about how 60% of the American public are concerned about putting food on the table. And these ideas about climate change and nuclear and people dying in other places, they can get very abstract when what you need to do is feed your children and, yes. and, and pay the rent. And, and, if a, and if a refrigerator breaks, have the money to pay for it. And 60% of our brothers and sisters are unable to do that gracefully. They're suffering. And what does that say about us? What it says is we are failing. And one of the aspects of the failing that I believe is the biggest contributor is our economic system. Intrinsic in capitalism is a few are going to benefit and a lot are not. It's just intrinsic in the game. You play Monopoly with a group of friends for the weekend. At the end of the weekend, a few people have everything and the others have nothing. And in capitalism, and, and monopoly are the same. Monopoly is basically a game of capitalism. We yeah. need a new economic system. And I'm reaching out to you, particularly those of you who are in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, who have 20, 30, 40 years to live and to plan. Please give some time to talking about a new economic system. And today we have with us a distinguished scientist who is bringing us this book was written some while ago, but we're bringing it back because it's important. And he's, going to, he's writing two more that are going to come out soon. And we're going to be talking to him very shortly. But before we do, and it's Dr. Neil Goldsmith, by the way, of New York City. And I'll just say one more time, and then I won't. Just go to Google. The book's been out a while. 
you'll want to take a look at this book. I mean, it's not just me pushing for it. The very fact that he's endorsed by people we trust on this program, Jim Fadiman, Rick Doblin, and others, that tells you, that that says it. That's enough right there. That's beautiful. (laughs) That's beautiful. And it explains really your focus. And since we've already spoken a bit, you know, and we've talked about our common uh, views, it, it makes perfect sense that you'd not only talk about mind and body, but also the broader context within which we fit, because we are collaborative, community-based organisms. And, you know, um, uh, and you, you mentioned it very importantly that the, the, um, the communities, um, uh, the healthiest communities, are ones where they're small enough Uh, so that we know each other, at least by face. You know, I I read somewhere years ago that um, tribal communities, clan-based communities, were somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 or 90 people. And um, I'm not sure if that's specifically true, but it it makes good sense to me that that would be about as big as you want. I live in New York City, as you mentioned. You know, anonymity is the uh, defense that immature people can use to... uh, uh, out of probably deep fear to feed themselves, feed their own people, feed their own needs, because they, they're afraid to really relax into um, a sort of a, a larger family um, uh, environment. So, I, I, you know, I hear you. Neil, I-, I grew up in Manhattan. Uh-huh. I got on an elevator every day to go down to go to school. The people on the elevator never spoke to one another. I'd go to the theater with my parents. There'd be a complete stranger sitting next to me. Never said hello, never shook hands. Happened in the theaters, in the live theater. Happened in the movie theaters. Happened when we went to hear an orchestra. Even in the beautiful setting uh, where they had a whole orchestra. and People would sit in beautiful seats and not say hello to one another. Isn't it? It's time for that to change. There's no reason in the world why every apartment building in New York City couldn't suddenly have everybody on the floor start saying hello to each other and inviting the other person in for a cup of tea. And who else is on my floor? We have a lot in common. We live in the same place. I was in the subway the other day, the most anonymous, sort of scary, perhaps, place you can think of. Really? And um, there was a woman uh, who got on. I, I was standing behind her as the subway arrived. And we both got on together. She was first. And we were holding on to the strap, you know, like. And she smiled at me. I smiled back at her. And she started talking to me. That is such an unusual, rare experience. It's happened to me once or twice in my lifetime. We had a lovely conversation. Uh, She was, you know, she was very attractive. um, But it wasn't anything about that. It was just a connection. And she rode with me and we talked. Uh, What are you doing for Thanksgiving? It was, you know, like that for just a few stops. And then she, it was her stop. And I said, well, you know, thank you for talking. It was so nice to talk to you. She said, thank you too. And she got off and that was it. I'll never see her again, I'm sure. But it was, it was marked by its rarity. Yes. What can we do to make that happen a lot more in your city? New York, leads, New York leads the way for the world. It really does in many ways. And California. Well, California leads in other ways, no question. What well, can we, but, but New York is known for this anonymity within a building, within a floor. 
that people yes. on the same floor don't know each other for years, don't, don't even know their names. Well, I don't know the direct relationship to that particular question, but one thought I had about capitalism, because, you know, I've thought a lot about it and I've railed against it many times, but it occurs to me that I'm not really against capitalism. In other words, making a, a, a something of value and making a small profit or an appropriate profit. And it occurs to me what I'm really against. So a mom and pop shop like farmers, they want to have a farm stand and sell their apples, you know, and they make a little profit from it appropriately and, you know, a, a, a moderate, moderate or a type of profit. This, I, I don't, I'm not against that at all. It, well, what then am I against in capitalism? I'm against corporate multinational capitalism where they're not really um, beholden to uh, the community, the broader community in this case of America, so they can go offshore and do things, or they can go to a place that's less developed and get cheaper um, uh, workers. And those things, you know, so, so I think one way we can talk about, you know, politics or the future of, of, of society is to think about not so much capitalism being a terrible thing, but unregulated, poorly regulated, capitalism. And the reason why they're poorly regulated is because of campaign contributions and lobbying and um, not to mention that a corporation is now considered a human being in oh. the United States. Right. What are they? What was that ruling again? Um, that has to the that Citizens has, United. Since Citizens United, United. Since United was like putting a, a nail in the coffin of America. The other it, it, the other nail being the lobbyists. Those two are deal killers. You put right. those two together, there's a deal killers, really. So I had a, a, um, a friend of mine who was talking about a human uh, dieback and that because of um, lack of uh, topsoil, overpopulation, the bigger pictures of the way we handle our, our environment, that, um, uh, that we are going to have a massive, he, he believes, a massive human dieback of billions of people sometime in the next few decades. Um, and so as we talked about it, I'm, he's my brother-in-law actually. And so we're very close. And I said, well, you know, what's the solution, Carlton? And he says, you know, um, uh, meditation and psychedelics, education, that's the solution, but we're unlikely to take advantage of that. So I think, you know, um, uh, if we, uh, education is the, is the longer term solution. It takes decades, it takes a generation, but education you know, and frankly, in, in terms of our, our enemies, like just to speak briefly about um, the Israeli situation, you know, I'm, I'm upset with both sides. But uh, to me, the best solution for resolving terrorist hatred of one country versus the other is building schools, building wells, um, contributing to the welfare of your enemy so that the population doesn't support um, leaders who are out to destroy the other side, but rather appreciate the other side, value all these wonderful uh, uh, um, gifts that are given so that they don't support the leaders who are more um, militaristic or more antagonistic with one another. They say, no, I don't want to, no, I don't want to kill that's the other side because look how wonderful they are. You know, I'm not going to vote for you. And they overthrow the, the, the leaders who are um, uh, militaristic or hostile. And so it's counterintuitive, um, and it takes a long time. It takes longer than a bomb to have some effect.
But that's, to me, the long-term solution is being loving, really, to our enemies. And it's, the, it's a very difficult thing to do. And especially if your you know, child has been killed, you know, how are you going to transcend that? Well, that's the challenge. It's easy for me to say it hasn't happened to me, thankfully. But, um, but philosophically, at least, logically, it seems, that to me is the approach. When we take stock of ourselves as a species, we don't get very high grades, in my opinion, <laughs> for how we take care of ourselves. And we don't get very high grades about how we're taking care of this thing that we call a planet that we live on. We're really, we're really, unfortunately and sadly, unevolved from a certain perspective. And certainly from the perspective of that we've been around this long and we still kill one another for any reason whatsoever. The fact that we still have it in us to kill one another. And of course, we're led by predators. But all that means is we still haven't figured out how to disengage from predators who would point us to kill other people. That's what that means, right? That, 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 that's where we are. And it's a very well, difficult... No. Because, when, you know, you mentioned the Israeli, you know, the, 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 the terrible stuff that's going on there, and of course it's terrible. But so is what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Terrible. At the same time, what I'm painfully aware of is more people are dying in Africa from various kinds of massacre and slaughter every day than are getting slaughtered in Ukraine and Russia and in Gaza and in Israel. But why does why do we not know about these perpetual slaughters in Africa? Because of racism and because it's a black and we call it a dark continent. And so the media don't keep exposing the terror that's going on there. But, then but let me ask you. I'm sorry, please. No, no, I like to be interrupted. I talk too much. No, you do not. But um, I, I just, I, the question I have in my own mind, and I will ask you it, is do you think, I mean, there, there are certain things that have changed over the millennia in our, in our planet, in our societies. Um, you know, you look at the way it was, I don't know, uh, thousands of years ago. Was it better or worse? We do have governments. We do have democracies. We do now. They're perverted, and 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 lately, over the recent decades, our democracy has been degraded. It's absolutely true. But if you look at it over the really long-term picture, over the millennia, there have been certain things that are that ever that have improved. And I don't just mean science and technology yes. and yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. So we have people like you, you know, who have these ideas. Um, and nobody I was and, watching, and, and nobody has lynched me or shot me yet. <laughs> right. And no, and, and, you know, if you think about, you know, uh, caveman times, um, you know, who was raping whom and who was with impunity, there was no government, there was no, you know, so I, I'm not sure. I, and I don't know, but it's, it's an open question for me as to whether things are better now in a broad sense, despite yeah. the things that are going wrong or not. And it could be, no, it could be Neil. You're, 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 you're being ridiculous. Things are worse now because we have, so the internet is a good example. I always thought, well, the internet is going to create world peace because we can, you know, you don't bomb somebody who's your good friend in 
China, let's just say, or wherever. You know, you, you, so the policies will change because we'll be one happy family. But I've been surprised to see how um, separating the internet can be. This atomization, this silo, silo effect of information between the conservatives and the liberals uh, that don't, you know, interface. When I was growing up um, during the Vietnam War, when I was a teenager, um, my father and I both read the New York Times. He was a conservative. I was a liberal. Mm -hmm. But we had the same information source, yeah. at least. And you, and, you and you trusted it. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, to some extent. Yes. Um, but 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 it was it, now there's separate, very, very separate and different information yeah. sources for us. And it's made things worse, at least temporarily, meaning in the coming decades. I have Hopefully an answer. I have an answer to whether the question you're raising about whether we've made progress. Our revolution, when we overthrew the king and the church, was yeah. a step forward in progress because we had gone 1,700 or more years where one man could simply say, cut off her head, cut off his head, and off went the head. So with our revolution, we went to somewhat of a system of everybody equal before the law. Flawed as it is, and the ability of the rich to buy their way out, it's still better, is all I'm saying, it's, a little, it's better than one guy, the king, who could say cut off his head, Absolutely. right? So, and we, we got rid of slavery, for example. Back when the revolution happened, there was slavery. All men are created equal, except some of us. But then, you know, 100 uh, years later or so, we, we outlawed slavery. Now, that didn't make it perfect, and there was lots of terrible things, and still are, lots of racial prejudice. But that event, that sh sh shuffling, shuffling off of, of slavery as part of our, 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 our official laws and policies, there's a step in the right direction as well. I don't have, so, but that's the one place so far today that I have an alternate view from you. I'm, I, I don't think we ended slavery. I think the South won. I think it just got morphed into a different form of slavery whereby the masters realized it's cheaper to have the slaves live off the plantation <laughs> rather than support them because they figured out that when they got old, they still had to feed them and clothe them and give them some modicum of a way to live, and that got too expensive. So by kicking them off the reservation and giving them their so-called, quote, freedom, what they really did was eliminate a cost expense for the business. And they still have the majority of the country are working in slavery. Because if that were not the case, then people would not have the fear of being thrown out in the street with their two children. They wouldn't have the fear of not getting medical help when they needed it. And as long as we, as long as that's out there, then people are working as slaves. For I'm others, afraid you're right. Right? I know it. It's. I, I'm not happy saying it, but but I believe it's true. It's basically well, still a slave system with the slaves living off the plantation. All right, but here's the difference where I'd push back a little bit, Good. which is that um, slaves couldn't vote, and the vote is uh, the thing that the masters are the most afraid of. Yes. And, right. And over the yes. decade, over the centuries since. Uh, emancipation um with jim crow and all that stuff you know slavery has uh um 
the vote has been fought over so much. And now th there's more of a vote. I mean, and so maybe there's a ray of hope in, in voter rights. But it's it, the, 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 um, I want to stop the, you right there. Of course. Thank you for allowing me. And the reason I'm stopping you is you said a ray of hope. Uh, Neil, I wanted to come back to something we've been talking about, which is the American public has been taught to get things done quickly. The five-minute manager. We went from going to spas to taking a pill. We want to go faster in our cars. We want skis that move more, everything more quickly, quickly, quickly. And... That is going to have an effect, and I want to hear your views on the effect of how psychedelic medicines are used, whether they're used for a quick fix right. or whether they're used for an introduction to the gold mine within. Talk well, to us yeah. about that, please. You know, that's such a great question because it's, it goes right to the heart of what is um, psychedelic therapy or psychedelic psychotherapy. Um, you know, it, it's true that many, there are many reports of people who've taken a psychedelic, perhaps even for the first time and had a life changing experience, something that was lasting. Um, uh, you know, those, that does happen. Um, yet, um, yet change takes time and, um, we are interested in the quick fix. It's true. And lots of people look at psychedelics as enlightenment or maturation in a pill. Um, and, you know, that's why I say the contraindication to psychedelic work is immaturity. And the, 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 um, the indication or the, the, the best way to approach um, psychedelic work is through reading, education, understanding. And that itself takes time before the actual experience. So, yeah, some people, I think there are instances, of course, where people have magnificent life-changing experiences, but they do tend to fade. You know, if you think about it, we've had our whole lifetimes to build our psychology. Um, and, uh, you know, often for the negative, mostly for the negative, perhaps, when we talk about, you know, uh, psychiatric or psychological um, uh, issues. Um, and uh, the world around us is so, um, uh, not intrusive exactly, but so heavy, so intense, so the, the commercialism, just the, the physical and visual world, despite the negative stuff, just bringing us to the outside. You know, we have all these senses, the five senses, the Buddhists say six senses, including the emotion. Um, but it's almost like we are, you know, a spaceship with all these parabolic antennas strung all on the outside uh, to get, you know, to get information for survival. It's adaptive for safety, to know if there's an enemy or there's food. And so uh, we're built, uh, we've evolved um, physically to uh, pay attention to the outside world. And that's why so many um, uh, meditative and, and psychedelic and psychotherapeutic um, approaches is all about looking inside. I've done Vipassana, a uh, silent meditation retreat. And um, in that approach, you really, you know, it, it's all about, um, you can, you're not even allowed to talk to anybody, even to pass the salt while you're eating dinner. Um, and some people wear hoodies. Well, I didn't understand it first, but the reason is because you don't want to be able to see the person next to you because it's about being inside. Um, I talk about, you know, I think it was Terrence McKenna said, sit down, you know, shut up and pay attention. And I, I think it was Leary who said, go into a darkened room. Maybe it was McKenna. And I tell people 
about psychedelics if you're going to do them on your own. You know, have somebody nearby um, in the living room, perhaps, but go into your bedroom, turn off the lights, climb into bed, get into the fetal position. Um, no music, no art books, no notebooks, um, nothing like that. And close your eyes and go inside and spend your trip looking on the inside. Cry your eyes out. I think I said before, you know, there's nothing more healing than warm salt water. Um, and if, if you come to trust the medicine and trust, you know, your soul, the, the aligning, uh, you know, you, you, if somebody says posture, the first thing you want to do is sort of straighten up. And so there's this natural alignment, um, adaptive part of us. So, you know, it, it, you, you got to trust your soul. So, but that's, so, so that's, that's a process. And so, but getting back to therapy, psychedelic therapy or psychedelic work, um, it, you know, uh, this, it takes time to go inside. It takes time to, uh, counteract, if you will, the, um, the, the overwhelming effect of the environment. And, um, for me, when I first started taking psychedelics as an adult, you know, when I was in college, I, I took them, it was all kind of intellectual fun and games with my buddies. And that was great. You know, it was really interesting and entertaining and, and not profound, but, but deep, you know, you know, stuff I hadn't really gotten into so much before, but it was very heady. And then, you know, like 20, 30 years later, 20 years later, when I started taking them as an adult, it was very, very different. And I would do that process of going inside and curling up and closing my eyes. Um, and, uh, when I first started taking them again, as an adult, I, I, I would take the first trip was LSD as I, you know, talk about in my book. Um, but, uh, subsequent to that, it was roughly monthly mushroom trips. And, and it was always, there was that white knuckle period we discussed where I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And after about a half an hour, an hour, when I really came onto the substance, I said, oh yes. And I would remember the feeling and relax. Um, but that took time and it took subsequent experiences, you know, multiple experiences for me to, um, allow myself to go inside and really look at, you know, it's almost like this topography of, of consciousness where here's what I'm, what I'm about to, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm about to say, you know, in my chest above the diaphragm is all the things I could say, uh, the diaphragm being a symbolic dif differentiation in this metaphor between conscious and subconscious, that diaphragm is semi-permeable during the day. But when you take psychedelics, it becomes much more semi-permeable. So you can see down and things can crop up. But that, you know, down in the gut, to me, that's metaphorically the psychology, the storms and the overhanging rock outcroppings and the tectonic plates of your, 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 your psychology that you created in, in concert with your parents over time. But then you go below that and you get down to the ground of your being, to the perineum, you know, the bottom of your abdomen, the, the, the soul, if you will. Spell soul with a small s because it's not spiritual, it's not religious. But when you get down to the very bottom, to me, that's perfect. That's the person you were born as. And so that takes time to trust and to relax and go down. So the one-shot experience, sometimes helpful, rarely lasts um, a lifetime. And the process of of going down deep and especially working with somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're alone to really get there without, um, the, the fear and the subconscious intervening and, you know, maybe muffling things or hiding things. And with an experienced person, they can remind you to relax, to breathe, to go deep. So, you know, I, I, I think time taking time is, is, is the, is the key to depth and, um, long lasting understanding. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that 
with the psychedelics, you might get a lot, but if you don't do the work, the effects are going to diminish. And uh, the, the reason I particularly find that interesting at this moment is earlier today, I interviewed Dr. David Smith, the illustrious founder of the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic. Oh, yes. And what David uh, was talking about was how the use of psychedelics with chemically dependent people results in very rapid uh, positive outcomes, but they don't last unless the person does the work. So when you do a two-year follow-up, there's no difference between those who took the psychedelics and those who didn't if they didn't do the work. And basically, you're saying the same thing. Now, while we're on the, su the subject of the work, as an existentialist who lives in the here and now, I'm challenged with the issue as a psychologist of material from the past. Freud spent his career dealing so much with issues in the past. But then in the second half of the 20th century, we've moved into, many of us moved into a more existential humanist orientation where we would deal with the clients or patients, uh, both groups, based on what was going on in the room at the moment in their very lives. Yet at the same time, we do know that there are traumas that seem to be living within us. And we refer to them as, as a person having these traumas as having post-traumatic stress disorder. So the question I'm leading up to for you is, using psychedelics to go within and then doing the work, is it necessary to deal with the demons of the past or is it enough to stay in the moment and to learn in the moment and to be in the moment and to live in the moment? And I'm going to just finish the question by pointing out something from my work with couples therapy, because mm -hmm. there are also two approaches to couples therapy. One is to have the couple in the room dealing with something in the immediacy. You give them an assignment plan a trip together right now in front of me or give them anything to do. The idea being that no matter what you give them to do in the moment, all their dynamics are going to come out. They're bickering, they're fighting, they're troubled, they're positive, their moment. It'll come out right in front of you. So that's method A. Method B is to allow them to talk about all the junk that they want to talk about from the past. Last week when I went to the, and then you did this, and you remember, and then I went, but no, but yeah. And then they get into a whole big thing about what happened last week, last month, last year, or last decade. And you attempt to use that material to teach them new ways. Again, it's the demons of the past. And the question to you is, to what extent do you believe we need to deal with those demons? Well, you know, I love dualities because 
it points so clearly to their transcendence. So you've asked me about a duality. Um, is it necessary to go back and look at the demons of the past? And by the way, you said the past, I, when, when you were first referring to it, I thought you were talking about childhood because that's, you know, where the psychology um, uh, is constructed first. Um, and then you talked about last week and last month and last decade even. But, you know, for me, uh, the duality is between depth work about your deepest unresolved childhood issues that form your, your defensive, really, personality, your acquired external um, uh, personality that we've adopted, um, and, um, and, and versus the present work. And so the duality, for, when, I, when I notice it, I smile because I love dualities. And the answer to, the, to your question is both. Yes. Either or yes is my answer. It's always, so, it's um, always C, all of the above, isn't it? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so I would say, you know, yes, I think that when you work with the present day moment, that there's going to be uh, stuff from the past will come up. And when I say past, I mean, you know, real far back past. And if you're dealing with a, a talented therapist, a couples therapist or individual, that, you know, they'll, somebody will say, oh, wow, you know, I was um, that, 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 that clerk in the supermarket, you know, disrespected me or something like that. And the, and the therapist, if they know you well, it's not just the sitter who met you last week, but somebody you've been working with who understands you, they're going to say, oh, wow, that reminds me of your relationship with your father or something like that. So the two are inextricably linked. And to me, there's more similarities than there are differences between the present and the past. Um, I'd also like to say that um, you talk about um, um, about work, and um, you know, it, although it's difficult, I I, I I I I I sort of move away from the concept of work. You know, there's a wonderful book out um, from years ago called "Working on Yourself Doesn't Work," and so a great title. Um, and I, I, I so when people talk about you know, hard work or cutting, you know, uh, cutting things out or, or um, eliminating or, you know, uh, annihilating the ego or things of that nature. You know, those words, those action, those sort of aggressive words are a reflection of the problem, not quite so much the solution. So, you know, I, I want people to understand that this is a beautiful process of unfolding. Difficult, yes, uh, maybe painful, um, tearful. Uh, but all in the service of, of growth. And um, it, it, when I say enlightenment, I don't mean in the, in the Eastern philosophical sense. I mean just being able to see clearly, to being able to understand. So, so you know, with psychedelics in particular, I mean, it's going to be difficult, frankly, to deal with the present without the past coming up. Um, and that's a good thing. That's one of the reasons why we use psychedelics, because they illuminate and uncover um, stuff that's down there that we've been sort of avoiding or hiding from, um, that, that distorts almost like, um, uh, like, um, like, uh, gravitational lensing that distorts the way we see things. So, um, so the answer is yes, I think both. Does that answer your question? It, does it, that it, respond? It, yeah, it does answer my question. Um, for some reason it leads me to be thinking about how we're going to go about doing this. How are we going to go about making psych responsible psychedelic yeah. therapy available? And the word responsible is the key word here. Just as in experimentation that's going on now with alternatives 
to monogamy and they're being called consensual and I'm calling them ethical consensual ethical. non-monogamy right with the with the highlight being on the ethics and the consent right so here we're talking about the response the, the highlight being responsible psychedelic therapy so that people get the best bang for the buck for what they're looking for. And how are we going to go about doing that? Have you given thought to that? Oh, yes. And, you know, for me, a key word that I use a lot is maturity or maturation. And um, so with, with maturity comes acting responsibly. And it's difficult to, to behave or act responsibly unless you've done your own work as a therapist, I mean, um, as, a, as a helper in, in one way or the other. So, you know, it's on two levels. How do you um, you know, provide responsible, mature um, uh, work, psychotherapy with people. Uh, and then more broadly, how do we create policies and a regulatory environment, um, the big picture that, um, that, that is also responsible? And honestly, I, I, you know, it's, you, that when, when searching for a therapist, not necessarily psychedelic therapist per se, I tell people you have to shop around, you know, meet somebody, talk with them, once or twice or whatever, you know, and then if they, they don't really fit with you, um, shop around, find the next one. So it takes, you know, a, a bit of time, because if you think about the normal distribution, the, the bell-shaped curve, you know, most people are, you know, most therapists are going to be halfway, you know, down on the, on the sort of lower end of the, of the curve, and half of them are going to be on the higher end, if you will. And so that eliminates, not eliminates, but, you know, 50% of the people. So finding a therapist uh, that's mature is, is a chore. But the bigger chore, I think, is the policy level, because there's so much, um, you know, your, your, your podcast is also about politics and the big picture, and finding, you know, people in government who have power to regulate, um, who will view um, in a mature, responsible way uh, to, to really understand the beauty and the power of psychedelic work. Um, and there I use that word again. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that's even more difficult than finding a, a good psychedelic therapist. That's a long-term process. You know, it takes a generation of education to, and, and, and meditation and psychedelics to, um, to change the environment, the big picture environment in which we all swim. Look at Oregon. You know, it, it's not a coincidence. It's on the West Coast, the Oregon Psychedelic um, uh, uh, initiative that they had. Uh, uh, where they approved the use of psychedelics. But they didn't use, approve the use of, of psilocybin. They approved the use of psilocybin psychotherapy. And so, you know, you, if, in Oregon, if you are using, if you're using psilocybin uh, mushrooms, it's not legal. But if you're doing it in the context of a, of a therapeutic approach, then it is legal. Now, that's an example of maturity, you know, I think, in terms of policy. Yeah, I have the privilege of working with a group up in Oregon called the Changa Institute that uh, have actually uh, graduated seven cohorts of 12 people each of psychedelic guides, and the program is authorized by the government, so it's sanctioned. It's a, it's a historical first. So we're going to... And there's also the, uh, is it uh, CIIS, I think it is. But I don't, yes. I don't think CIIS is allowed to use the substances in their training, whereas in Oregon, they're allowed to use the substances in their training. And this is another question. Although, excuse me, isn't there, uh, um, I, I think 
some of the psychedelic programs, I can't remember, I think it's the MAP-sponsored MDMA uh, research, where they, where it is permitted uh, to um, give the, uh, the, the therapists in training the experience of, yes, of MDMA. Yes, but the reason for that is not because the particular geographical area decriminalized the substance. No, it's because no. MAPS got permission from the government to do that particular specific piece of research. Yes, from the FDA, I guess. Yeah, that's that's how that uh, how that came about. Um, I'm not sure. I'm comfortable with the with the. Um, actually, I'm going to be much more direct than that. I'm not comfortable with Gavin Newsom, the governor of the state of California, vetoing the uh the bill to decriminalize certain uh psychedelic vegetables and fungi he just vetoed it and i want to hear your views on this and it, it really it comes down to two really very different perspectives one is what i call the paternal perspective that flies under the flag of safety and that perspective is we, the government, are going to decide what you can and what you cannot ingest. And those things that we think you cannot ingest, we're going to either make extremely difficult to get, such as rat poison, or we're going to make it illegal, such as psychedelics. So that's one side of it. The other side of it are those of us who I consider to be strict constitutionalists, and we believe that we have the right to ingest anything in the privacy of our own home as long as we don't harm another human being, up to and including rat poison. That if yes. we want to eat rat poison in our living room, that is our entitlement as a living being on the planet. There are two very different views. I'd like you to weigh in. Well, it reminds me of the book by Thomas Zaz. Um, uh, I wish I could remember the title of it right now, but that was his philosophy toward mental, the myth of mental illness. The myth of mental illness. And, uh, you know, his, his approach is very much similar to what you just said, which is, look, you know, first of all, don't put people in institutions just because their behavior makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> people who are, you know, hallucinating or, or babbling on in the streets. If you, you know, as long as they're not harming anybody, that's your problem, not really theirs. Yes. They're a citizen as well. Um, and what he went further to say was, what we really need to do is to criminalize, if you will, the harm, not the substance. So in other words, drinking and driving is an extreme example. It's, you know, kind of hard to debate that it's a good thing to drink and drive, obviously. But, you know, as long as you don't kill somebody or hurt somebody or harm somebody, he claimed, that you know we have no right to prohibit alcohol, but we should prohibit accidents. And I guess in that instance, you know there'd be a number of a huge number of accidents, and so therefore it, it would be essentially outlaw. But with the case of psychedelics, it's sort of the same thing. Like you said, we should be permitted to take substances in our home um, or elsewhere for that matter. Uh, and the problem should be the harm caused, uh, uh, not the uh not the substance that you've taken um 
So yeah, I, I'm in favor of that. I mean, you know, there is another side to it, however. I mean, there is a valid uh, role of government to regulate our safety. And in the case of rat poison, for example, I mean, yes, if you want to do it yourself and as long as you don't poison or kill others, you know, yes, I do agree with you that we should be able to do it. And yet there, there needs to be, you know, stop signs, uh, you know, so that we, we have a safe intersection when we're driving. I believe in that role. I also, you know, there are people like um, my friend Ethan Nadelman, um, who's uh, very much of a libertarian as far as psych psychedelics are concerned. He believes they should be legalized immediately. And I'm not sure that would be a wise. Um, I think perhaps, you know, um, you know, this is him talking years ago. Maybe he's changed his views by now. I, I hope he hasn't. <laughs> well, I, 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 I hear you, actually. But, you know, I've always thought that a way to, uh, to introduce the, the wholesale legal use of psychedelics would be through education. You know, it's like we need to teach our children what drugs not to take, but also how to take drugs. And the effect of various drugs, rat poison isn't a drug, but rat poison is an example, or heroin, or others, that, you know, heroin has a really useful purpose in end-of-life uh, care. It's more effective, stronger than, um, than um, uh, morphine. Um, so, you know, um, p young people, we, as part of the educational process, regardless of age, people need to, be, to understand how to take drugs, what the effects are, and enable them to make their own choices. But that's a process that takes a long time. Right now, we have a, you know, an immature uh, governmental system and governmental um, uh, leaders. So um, I think, you know, it takes time to, uh, to in, I, I do believe that there's a role for government in helping stay safe. Excuse the. Uh, Is that yours or me. mine? It's mine. I apologize. Okay. So, um, you know, so I do think there's a role for government. Now, as far as psychedelics are concerned, you know, they're, they're safe, safe and effective when used as directed. Um, so we need to train people, teach people as to how to use them as directed. What, so for me, adverse effects, you know, uh, both in terms of my personal use of psychedelics for, for my own, you know, psycho-spiritual development, I don't make a big distinction between psychology and spirituality. I, I've, I've never, I've, I haven't been a psychedelic uh, therapist. I have... On rare occasions, have or have not, have not. No, no, right. It's not. It's not been my practice. But yeah. there have been some instances where people I've worked with for a very long time, it felt unethical not to work with them with psychedelics. And so, probably over the twenty-year or so or more um, uh, experience of mine as a therapist, um, I worked with people uh, actively with psychedelics. But it, I was never really a psychedelic uh, psychotherapist. Understood. But I always, and, and by the way. The exact same thing is true for me. Exactly. Right. And by the way, I would never, you know, one of the things that's odd to me, um, I understand it, but it doesn't seem optimal by a long shot, is people who are guides who meet somebody, uh, you know, a week before the set planned session, talk to them, are wonderful, open-hearted, you know, give them a good vibe, a good feeling, sit with them for the session, or a therapist for that matter, not just a sitter, but, you know, a psychotherapist. And then, you know, follow up with them as needed over the following week or two. And that's that. To me, that's suboptimal by a long shot. So for me, when I did feel the, the necessity really to work with people uh, with psychedelics, these were always people who I'd uh, worked with, who had who'd been in my practice for years, really, for quite a while. So I knew them so well. And the, psych the therapeutic um, alliance, the therapeutic bond was already established. And they felt 
you know, relaxed enough to open up to me. And so, so that's been my experience as, you know, so, in terms of so that relates to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, which is the fear issue, because they're going to be minimal fear having this alliance with you for so long. Bingo. So they're exactly. going, they're going in in an I almost ideal low fear situation. Well, it's funny because you're absolutely right. And that's the point I was making. And it's so true because the, the thing that, you know, that for me, that's people talk about bad trips. I don't think about bad trips. I think about difficult trips. Um, because even when somebody has a quote unquote bad trip that f almost always in retrospect, years later, they consider it one of the most valuable experiences of their lives. Definitely. They wouldn't want to repeat it, right. but nonetheless, it's incredibly. So for me, and by the way, also true for me personally. Yes. What you just Absolutely. said, my first right. psychedelic experience when I ate 400 morning glory seeds after reading about it in the back <laughs> of Tim and, and, and Albert's <laughs> book. Right. Yes. It was the one of the most wonderful and important and educational and life changing. And it was also one of the most scary, painful experiences I ever had. No question. That's right. And LSA, which is the chemical, as you probably know, that's in Morning Glory Seeds. It's not LSD. It's LSA, which is a I don't know how to put it exactly. Kind of a lesser form, uh, not as pure, uh, not just chemically, but but spiritually um, and difficult on your body. It's it's a heavy uh, body load. Uh, LSA, morning glory seeds, but psychedelics are psychedelics and they're, they're more similar to one another than they are different. Yes. Um, various psychedelics. But you know, the, the one woman I'm, I'm thinking of in particular who I did work with with psychedelics, who I'd been seeing for at least two or three years. And, um, the material that came up when we were, uh, when she was, you know, tripping, um, was stuff she'd never mentioned to me in therapy. So even though the therapeutic alliance was in place and it was as ideal as could be. It was still stuff that she hadn't shared with me in the past that hadn't come up. And that was, you know, magnificent because that's the whole purpose, I guess. So fear is, is counteracted by um, uh, information, by knowledge, by the relationship, of course, with who you're at, who, with whom you're, you, you, you are, with whom you're with. So I tell people, don't take psychedelics and go to some party somewhere where people you don't know are going to be you know, be with your best friend, be with your sister or your brother, you know, somebody that you just trust down to the core so you can relax and, and also educate yourself in advance, read up on it, you know, um, and, and, you know, so, so the, those things help. Well, well what, what, you, what you're doing here, Neil, it really is pointing out that there's an interesting differentiation that can be made with regard to certain medicines and psychedelics happen to be one of those medicines which can be used either as a medicine or as a recreational event. Uh, we, we see right. the same thing happening with Xanax. We see it with oxycodone. We see it with a lot of medicines, not just psychedelics, where they're used medicinally and then they use recreationally, if you will, or to get high, right? And you and, right. I, you and I have spent our lives in the re arena of relating to these as sanct, I see them as, as almost sanctified. Sacraments. They are sacraments, and, and my work is with medicine, as is yours, as is yours. But at the same well, time, you know, the other day, I, I'm talking to somebody who wants to learn how to become a psychedelic guide and got introduced to MDMA by dancing with it all night, not by right. look right? And he went for who knows how long a period of time dancing and using it as a dance drug with and not all the you know the 
inside stuff that we find particularly in couples work so valuable. Right? Yes, yes. Well, two things I would say about that. First of all, um, there are certain people who feel that um, the sacrament, you know, and by the way, for me, I don't really distinguish so much between a spiritual sacrament and the most powerful medicine, that, you know, uh, it distilled, if you will, boiled down, you know, or created by, by, by humans. Um, to me, there's two ends of the same spectrum, if you will. Um, so, but I, some people feel that you should not take these psychedelics recreationally, that they should be treated as a holy spiritual. So I don't agree with that personally. I feel that, um, there's nothing wrong with a group experience, with a rave, with a personal, but you know, I do tell people that, you know, if you're going to take it without, uh, outside of a psychotherapeutic context, which kind of, you know, for people who are just starting out, I don't really recommend that, uh, you know, but if you're gonna, you know, go into uh, your bedroom, you know, uh, uh, get in the fetal position, um, uh, turn off the lights and go inside and cry, 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 cry. Nothing more healing than warm salt water. So cry and go inside with, with trust in your soul and the medicine or the sacrament. And, you know, have tr if you've educated yourself enough, you will have trust in the process. And so you can relax and go deep, deep, deep down to your soul. And soul is a word I use a lot, but it's, I spell it with a, with, with a small s. It's not soul in the religious sense. It's just a wonderful term for a psychologist to think of what is the deepest part of our, of our, of our, of our insides, if you will. What, Hein, what Heinlein called grokking, getting in touch with that very deepest, deepest, Absolutely. deepest. Yes. Exactly right. So, so that's the first thing I would say about it. Uh, you know, that, you know, I don't really make a big distinction, you know, between recreational and it's all part of the uh, self-exploration uh, experience. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is that you mentioned Xanax and other drugs like that. And, you know, of course, the, um, there's a big distinction between psychedelics as a class of drugs and any other drug. Yeah. And although there's similarities, like you say, in the way they're used, some recreationally, et cetera, That's you know, of course, right. you know, psychedelics have their own unique focus. And as I said before, there's, they're, they're more similar mescaline, LSD, uh, the, the tryptamines I'm talking about now, yes. um, DMT, you know, ayahuasca, uh, those drugs really, they're, they're different. It's like the difference between maybe wine and brandy and vodka, but they're all alcohol, all alcohol, you know? Right. So, That's right. but MDMA is a different story because Very MDMA is, you know, is chemically a, an amphetamine, a methoxylated amphetamine. And so, although it's not speedy, like, like methamphetamine, nonetheless, it's a different class of drugs and it's interesting to think about how MDMA and let's say LSD um, overlap in their effects because they can both give you the most magnificent spiritual experience, seeing God and all that type of thing. Um, you know, so they're, they're, they're similar. I, I, pers I personally find combining them to be uh, a, uh, a very yeah. sweet spot between the heart and the head because I find LSD to be more cognitive and MDMA to be more somatic and more what we might call heart opening emotional and so the two together create this kind of almost jeffersonian ideal of the heart and the head coming together how did you take them so you know people talk about uh candy flipping i think it's called where you start with um 
MDMA, I guess, and then you take the LSD later. I, I'm a little confused, frankly. I don't remember. But you know, I'm not sure. How do you? How how would you recommend, or how how would you personally take them at the uh, same time? Or no, no, you wouldn't. I think what you just described with that with that uh, vernacular uh, candy something there. I think that's what they're describing is a pretty accurate way to go about it. Namely. You wait until just before the MDMA is about to take its effect, which is somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes for most people right in, right in that area. Mm -hmm. and, and then about 10 minutes before, if you know your system, you take the LSD, which can come on certainly within 10 minutes. And so what happens then is that the jangly part of the LSD takeoff, which makes right. many of us experience the it's white sort of, knuckle period, I call it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's dramatic. I know what you mean. So that gets softened out. Yeah, because the, the, MDMA, the MDMA just handles the fear. And, right. and that, yeah. And it, it's an interesting thing that you call it the white knuckle. Because I think what happens, this is my, my theorizing, is that when people get a sudden burst of their blood pressure and their heart rate. And if the two happen at the same time, they go on alert. The system goes on alert. Yeah. But given our culture, we are trained from children that when the system goes on alert, it's like there's a bear in the forest. It's something out there that we should be looking for that put us on alert. And what we need to do with the psychedelics, of course, is look the opposite way inside <laughs> Because we are causing. And I think right. once people learn that, they'll also learn it having nothing to do with psychedelics, namely when they start to get upset inside to look inside instead of looking at who caused it. Right. That's Take perfect. responsibility rather than abdicating and then having somebody else be the cause of the upset. And then, of course, right. that leads to a victim mentality. You you created that in me. You're so, so right. And, you know, earlier I said um that you, you, you come to through education, through reading, through, you know, uh, just preparation in a way that you come to trust the material, the, the substance and your soul. And for me, over many trips, over many years, um, I have always had a white knuckle period where I didn't know what to expect. You know, there's always the fear that you're going to have a bad experience, a difficult, you know, that sort of stuff. And in every single instance, I've been very fortunate. Um, I never had a terrible, you know, uh, uh, horrific or scary experience like many have had. But for me, the white knuckle period is like that. And then once I've come onto the substance, once it, once I say, oh, yes, 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 then I completely relax because I know what to expect. I know what, um, uh, I, I, like I said, I trust the material. I know that it's going to be good that as long as I'm open and, and surrender really, to, you know, Santa Daimi, right, means give it to me, Lord, essentially, um, you know, uh, 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 that I know that as long as I'm surrendered to the experience and not uptight and not trying to control it and just letting it go where it goes, that it's going to be a, a helpful experience. Um, so, uh, you know, after, so over the years, I've come to not have such a white knuckle experience because, you know, over and over again, it turns out well. And so, um, you know, I think people can have that over years or they can have it through just educating themselves, even as a first timer.
and being with people who are knowledgeable and loving. I want you to dissect psychedelic fear some more for us, please. I mean, you, you've said you've had sure. fear over and over again. So that implies it's something to continuously work on and expand on rather than, well, I conquered fear of psychedelics in no. 1863 and I haven't, no. right. So let's give us well, some... It's, it's improved, I, sh I shall say. Yeah, I should say that, you know, over the years, the white knuckles are less white, you know, because I do know from my own personal repeated experience that this is something I want. This is some, you know, this is something that is going to be helpful for me. However, the fear is, I think, twofold. There's a lot of, you know, PR, negative PR. Uh, it used to be more so. Now it's a little different. But in the old days, you know, the, people jumping out of the, off the roof and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And you don't know exactly. And before I was, when I was in college and I was taking psychedelics, you know, I hadn't read as extensively or really at all. I was following my roommates, you know, but, um, you know, I, I, there, there was that fear over the years. However, that, 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 that has changed in the public. I mean, there's been less negative press, so to speak. And also I have my own personal, you know, experience, but there's always going to be, I mean, what, why does one take psychedelics? Recreationally, that's one thing. But if you're looking at it as a spiritual development um, aid um, or even psychotherapy more, more, in a more surface way, um, but still going deep, what are you, why are you taking it? You want to go see without defenses, with clarity, um, what's, deep, what's deep, deep inside you, what you don't see in your day-to-day -day life, the thing that's guiding you subconsciously, guiding is not really the right word, um, but, you know, uh, steering you, let's say, um, from, from deep inside, the unresolved childhood issues, um, and also philosophical, spiritual philosophical uh, inquiry that, you know, what we don't know. So you're using psychedelics as a illuminant, as a, um, you know, people talk about um, uh, awakening or a, as a spiritual awakening, or, um, you know, there's a good reason why they use that word awakening. Because it's like a dream, you know, life is sort of like a dream when you, when you, when you wake up from a dream, you, you thought it was real, but when you wake up, you re when you awaken, you realize that this is the real, the real reality. So, um, with psychedelics, for me, it's, it's a clarifying illuminant type of an experience. And so what is it illuminating? It's illuminating stuff that you've kept in the dark. And so there's always that, that, uh, Fear may not even be the right word at this point, but let's use it. You know, there's this fear of what you might encounter when you go look inside, when you're shown things that you haven't allowed yourself to see. You're using an artificial substance, something that, you know, is a tool uh, that, that uh, opens up and shows you stuff that you have hidden from because you don't want to see it. So there's always that fear of encountering stuff that, you know, that you're artificially exposing yourself to. And if you can relax into it, it's a very, very valuable experience. But the fear is always there of what you're going to see. Is the fear a fear we all share? Or is each person, does each person have their own set of fears? Does each person have their own set of, what's the absolute worst thing that you could find out about yourself? <laughs> is that... Are we would would we then be getting to the root of the fear, or is the root of the fear 
what I think the root of all fear is and the way I handle my own fear, which is I think the root of all fear is the fear of dying. So um. when I get scared, whether I think it's scared of something in my relationship, I'm going to lose all my money, I'm going to end up uh, on the streets, or my health, I'm going to get parted out, or whatever kind of fear I can make up. As soon as I feel the tendrils of the fear, I immediately go to my fear of dying and deal with my fear of dying. For me, I find that to be the most effective and immediate way to just bring myself back to, okay, what's next? Put on my pants and go to work. So what I want to know... would carry water. <laughs> right. I want to know when Neil Goldsmith takes a psychedelic and he's looking the way you said you're looking, do you have a procedure? Do you have sort of a protocol that you follow for looking within? What is your tactic? Well, breathing is super important. I mean, not just breathing, of course, but, you know, taking deep breaths, helping one to relax. That's just one little thing. But look, what you no, said- No, no, wait very... a minute. I'm not going to let you get away with that. That, okay. because it's not one little thing. Well, I now, mean, we breathe you're, you're, all the time. You're, you're mentioning- Breathing. Now, you're mentioning breathing first, and if you were to say to me, Richard, what's your number one tool in this world for maintaining balance without a hesitation? Breathing. So that's why I'm saying we're not going to go so quickly away from breathing. No, it's it, very, it brings you inside. It gives you a, 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 a biological, natural, healthy rhythm uh, of your own heartbeat, your own breath. Um, so, and of course it, it oxygenates, you know, like if you look at all the, um, meditative breath, uh, breath, um, uh, procedures in the various, uh, esoteric philosophies. Um, and I believe that they're all about reducing carbon dioxide and increasing oxygen in your bloodstream. You know, carbon dioxide is associated with hip, that. hip, hip, hip. I've got a comrade. Absolutely. Do I believe that every right. little tiny atom in the body needs that oxygen, right? That's right, and oxygen is correlated with feelings of well-being, and carbon dioxide, like carbogen in the old days, carbon dioxide is associated with, with when, you, when you have a panic attack, if they take blood from you, it's got a high concentration of carbon dioxide. So exhaling fully, getting the car, you know, when you're, when you're tense or anxious or fearful, you, you, your breath becomes short. And that means that only one-third of your lungs are being... Um, uh, that the carbon dioxide is only getting removed from one third of your lungs and the bottom two thirds of your lungs still have carbon dioxide. So when the bloodstream comes around to get more oxygen, it's getting carbon dioxide too. And so it builds and builds and builds and carbon dioxide is associated with panic attacks. So deep breathing, meditative breathing, all the esoteric um, uh, uh, philosophies or approaches, there are different breath, <sighs> there's different types of breath techniques. But in my observation, they're all about increasing oxygen and decreasing carbon dioxide. So, so could do we yes. both, as two tribal elders, agree that those who are about to or are experimenting with psychedelics or use it in therapy best have learning how to breathe and breathe properly for best oxygenation one of their primary tools? We Absolutely. agree on and I, It's very simple. Really, it's, it, it's, it's not that esoteric or complicated when you right. boil it all down. 
exhale fully, empty your lungs, and then let your body take as much oxygen as it wants, fresh air as it wants. Exhale fully, get all that carbon dioxide out and just breathe in naturally. That's what I tell people. It's really simple, really. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a cute aside. Sure. I'm an endurance swimmer. Um, and I use, part. I use equipment when I swim because I want to swim. I, I'm a multitasker. So I like to get the exercise, but I also want to have the time inside my head to use that hour that I can be creative or think or write or whatever. I swim with a snorkel. Now, the reason for the snorkel is I don't have to go, which takes a lot of attention. My face is straight down in the water where I can not move my face and get the most meditative aspect of it because I'm moving with my arms and legs and my head is still. I'm aware of what you're talking about, that when you breathe out through a snorkel, because it's a pipe that goes up, you can't get all the carbon dioxide out. So when you suck the next level of oxygen in, you're sucking the carbon dioxide that got at the bottom of the tube back into your lungs. I'm thinking, what do you do about this? Of course, somebody invented a way to deal with it. So I bought it. It's a double, it's a double, it's a double snorkel. It comes up both sides of your face. Mm-hmm. It goes into your mouth, but the exhale is directed out down. The exhale doesn't go up through the tubes. So not only do you get rid of the carbon dioxide down, but Perfect. you get twice as much oxygen in. That's oh, great. When I found that, I've been in heaven, and I recommend it to all swimmers. It's a great thing. Okay. Now, you said you wouldn't let me get off the hook so easily when I talked about breathing. So we've talked about breathing for a few minutes now. I want to go back to your original question, if I if I may, please. Uh, which was, you know, um, about the difference between your own personal fears, your psychology, your own history, your own unresolved childhood issues, and fear of death, uh, the the deeper universal things. And so you asked which sort of was it, and I think it's both. Of course, we all have our unresolved. Psychology, uh, childhood issues, our psychologies, the things we're f- scared of because of the, up, usually generally because of the upbringing we've had, the way we were parented. Um, but ultimately, you know, you said death is the ultimate um, uh, fear. fear. And I, I agree with you absolutely as an, as an individual organism, as, a, as, a, as an animal, as an individual, as an individual. That's absolutely true. The cessation of my life is the ultimate fear. But there's a bigger issue even than that, really, oh. which is, and, and it's, it takes, pl- it, it's what I talk about in, in the book I'm working on now, Psyche, um, Psyche Therapy, um, uh, Soul, Death, Love. And that's about basically the nature of the universe. This is a clinical philosophy uh, meant to help um, uh, psychotherapy uh, students, graduate students, and, and, and the average, you know, the, 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 the citizen the educated uh, citizen as well. But I'm thinking in terms of how do you become a good therapist? Um, you know, for me, I, I, I'm a social psychologist, frankly. I've taken, you know, I, I'm, I have a master's degree in, in counseling, but my doctorate is social psychology. It's a research degree. And after doing that, in, 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 I, went, I, worked at, I worked at Princeton. I got my PhD there. And then I um, went to um, 
um, uh, AT&T and American Express as an internal consultant on <laughs> uh, change management and, in, and advanced technology, artificial intelligence, things like that. And when I went, when I finally left that after about 15 years and, and reopened my clinical practice I had at the master's level, I needed new training because I had taken psychedelics and that was kind of why as an adult, and that was kind of why I changed my, my career plans. And it's, it's a wonderful spur to do that. But um, so, so, um, so what I've found is that, the, the, like I said, soul, death, love. So you start out as, as, a, as a baby, in my philosophy, essentially perfect, you know, uh, with individual variations, of course, because we're animals, but basically an un, um, un, unharmed uh, psych, psych, psychology. Uh, then that's the soul part. Then the death subtitle is we go through in developmental psychology, we go through many deaths and rebirths where you're coming along fine, everything's cool, and then you hit a wall and you beat your head against the wall for a while until some, some, uh, uh, some shift, some, uh, what do they call it, a phase shift where you in, in, almost instantaneously get up on the next level. And from that level up there, you look down at what you were beating your head against and you say, well, that's obvious. I get that now. And you go along fine until you hit another wall. And then again, you, you have a quantum leap and you're up on the next level and that one becomes obvious what you hit. Your, so this is many deaths and rebirths is developmental psychology. Then the last one, which is love in the subtitle, last word is love is if we're fortunate and we continue to develop, you know, and, and over the course of our lives, because you kind of have two different paths in life. You can sort of continue to grow and learn or you can shut down. So if we've, if we've continued to grow and learn, then the last subtitle is love. We kind of come back to where we were in soul as a, as a baby, where we started out. So through that developmental process, you come to a point of, of, of understanding, of wisdom, of, 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 of peace of mind. But in order to train um, the, uh, the, the students I'm, I'm aiming the book at, it's like this. So here you are, to be a good therapist, you really have to know something about developmental psychology. In order to know something about developmental psychology, you really need to know something about uh, human nature and how we are animals here on Earth. In order to know about that, you really need to know more about your, your soul, your deepest part of you, and your consciousness, if you will. You need to come to some definition of that. In order to really understand consciousness, you really need to think in, about the universe and why it exists at all. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because frankly, having nothing would be more parsimonious. <laughs> but yet the universe does exist. So why, is the, why does the universe exist? And to me, the, that's the one question that cannot be answered by science. And it's where we interface with spirituality and, and quote-unquote religion. So it, for me, um, the universe as a whole is what people over the millennia have referred to as God. I'm an atheist, but I'm a very, very spiritual person. So for me, the question of why is there something versus nothing is, um, is, well, it's the Hindu uh, concept of suchness, you know, it just is. Um, but it's all, for me, it's, it, it, it's always been here and it always will be. And maybe it's a pulsating big bang, big crunch, uh, like, a, like breath, which would be a nice, you know, way to think of it. But one way or the other, you have to come to, con con come to terms with why the universe exists. So that's the universe, not your own personal death. If you get down to that level of understanding, perhaps with the illumination effect of psychedelics, then you can come back up and think about your soul. 
You can think about consciousness. You can think about developmental psychology. And then you can become a good psychotherapist because you have that grounding in, your, in, in the sort of understanding of the essence of things. Um, and, and those who don't do that, who don't get to that deep understanding, are really just, you know, like using methodology, almost like as defense against your own fears. Um, and it separates you from the client. So in my work with, with I call them clients rather than patients, because it's not a medical problem. My, I, I never really dealt with people who were medically schizophrenic or, you know, like that. I dealt with people who were like us, who were searching. So they're clients, not patients. It's not a clinical approach. So, you know, uh, for me, I just had a direct personal relationship with the people I was, I was working with, like what we're talking about really right now, the way we're talking. My work as a clinician was really not all that different from the sort of stuff we're talking about now. Of course, I was focused on it's, them. It's, it's interesting you say that because as you're talking, I was thinking if I lived in Manhattan, I'd either be competing to be his best friend or I'd be his patient. And that's, that's, well, as, that's about as big a compliment as I can give you. That is an enormous compliment. And I feel the same way. I feel like, you know, we really, like you've gone to many of the same places and depths yes, of understanding. Almost identical. On the, on, and we're on two different coasts, including, well, you know why? including the career way. change, the career uh, change from psychedelics, leaving teaching at Michigan and Stanford and going at the career change. That happened. I'm an atheist, but I'm a very spiritual I resonate to the same thing. So now I'm, I'm going to test you out on one thing politically. Do you I just Before you do, I want to just add one little coda to that. Please. There's only one reality. And you, can, you see it. You've come to see it. I've come to see it. A poet sees it from one perspective. A physicist sees it from another perspective. And we it, you use our special language and, and, and vernacular to describe it. But there's only one reality. And so if you can come to some level of clarity then it's, it's not that surprising that you and I would have similar concepts and ideas. Yes, yes. How do you feel about the Marxist slogan, and I say feel, how do you resonate inside about, about the Marxist slogan, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need? I, I'm 100% in favor of that. In fact, I've been railing against capitalism lately. I'm getting sick of, of commercialism, of commercials, of uh, the way, you know, in, in America, unfortunately, you know, we've had a several decades long um, uh, process of, um, of, of moving away from protection of the average citizen, of, of the, the, the greater whole of, of, of the many. And, uh, and the reason why, in my opinion, this is political, not psychedelic, but it's because of, um, of legalized bribery, which we call campaign finance uh, contributions. Oh, do I love hearing what you're saying. So it's fucked up everything. It's legalized it's, bribery. Lobbying right. is legal. It should be a, fel a, f a felonious act. Absolutely. It, and it should and the, be prosecuted for it. I totally agree. You campaigns know. should be financed by the people's taxes. Because once you have special interest groups contributing to the campaigns, we call it, you know, bribery, contributing to the campaigns of politicians, then, you know, they are beholden to the contributor. Because if they don't do what the contributor would like, either explicitly or implicitly, then comes next round of elections, they won't get the money anymore. So it's a terrible system. And it's the uber, uber problem in America is campaign finance. Because why don't we have good environmental laws? Ah, because the oil companies contribute to politicians. Why don't we have 
uh, the, you know, uh, whatever. Every single problem we have can, as a nation can be boiled down to the way we finance campaigns. Neil, uh, I'm going to drop a name and say, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but the other night I, I, I had dinner with my friend, Jerry, Governor Jerry Brown, and with, yes. with another friend, uh, Will Marshall of Planet Labs in San Francisco. And they're talking about climate change and nuclear proliferation. And those are the big hot topics for them. And I said to them, you know, those are important topics. But how do you talk to those topics to an American public where 30 to 40 percent are suffering from anxiety, 30 to 40 percent are suffering from depression, 72 percent are obese or overweight, and 60 percent don't know what they would do if their next paycheck comes in because they might be out on the street. They're worried about feeding and sheltering their family. How do we talk to those people about nuclear and climate change when they're talking about eating and not having anxiety and feeding their children? And here's where I'm going with this question. Roughly 20% of the American public are illiterate. Bingo. You and I are talking about the work that needs to be done after you take psychedelic medicine. You have gone into depth in your writings about the preparation that you believe is the most effective preparation for taking psychedelics, which includes, in your words, establishing a powerful alliance with the person that's going to be sitting with you so that mm -hmm. the ultimate safety is created. These 20% cannot read and write. They cannot read and write. And we're talking about these lofty things, psychedelics. We're talking about protecting them from things like fentanyl, which they're subject to, in OxyContin, because they are in pain and they're taking pain meds. Neil, this is a major issue for me. And this is the is issue which has as its root our economic system, which is capitalism. Yes. And, and of course, uh, uh, in that same... Uh, issue area in that same problem area is the way we, uh, the, the, for me, the Uber issue, uh, I mentioned it earlier, is the way we um, fund our uh, campaigns. Uh, and the fact that through the Citizens United uh, decision and just in general, even before that, the way uh, campaigns were financed, um, you know, outside contributions were permitted. And then Citizens United came along and basically opened it up completely. But uh, the whole system is rotten um, to and of course, it's because money um, is power. And so, you know, it's very difficult for somebody who's not mature, somebody who hasn't really, you know, come in touch with their deepest self, their deepest core, 
um, to resist the allure of money. And it's, it's difficult enough just in general. You know, we all want to have, have safety and, and nice things and things that keep our, ourselves and our family safe. Um, uh, you know, but uh, the system as we, as we have it right now is um, uh, that the, the politicians, the regulators, are in the pockets of wealthy individuals. So it's not a democracy. It's not for the people. It's for the wealthy who can, you know, fund campaigns. So, you know, what we really need to do, and it's, I'm not sure how to, to do that, sort of like changing your running shoes while you're running. But, you know, what we really need to do is, is to uh, fund our, our politicians, our campaigns, if you will, um, through taxes and through the, the, the general coffers for the people and not allow any outside contributions to campaigns of any sort. Because it's just so obvious and simple. Um, it's like, you know, a, a, um, a secret that we wink and nod about that it, you know, that whoever pays you, whoever gives you money, um, that's who you're going to regulate for and legislate for. So, you know, if, if a legislator gets paid, I don't know what, $150,000 a year or $200,000 a year, but their campaigns cost $2 million, um, you know, so the people pay $150,000 toward their salary and outside forces pay $2 million. And if you don't do what the outside forces want, then they won't give you the money next year for next election. It's just the system is so obviously, it's what I call Bakshi's capitalism. And it's, it's bribery, it's legalized bribery. And it is, for me, the Uber issue. You talked about nuclear proliferation, this population issues, um, the, you know, um, the environment. All of those things are um, now being done in, in, a, in a venal kind of, you know, you know, ineffective um, way that doesn't really help the people, um, helps individual interest groups, individuals and individual interest groups. So that has to be changed. And, um, you know, even back when, when um, I think it was McCain, uh, the McCain, uh, I can't remember, the, there was a Republican, John McCain, and then the, his Democratic uh, co-sponsor for the, um, that was, uh, they took the teeth out of that bill. And as a cynic, I believe that, you know, the, the powers that be came to John McCain and said, listen, if you ever want to run for president, you better soften that bill to restrict, you know, uh, to, uh, on campaign finance. And he did. I think he caved uh, to the pressure. That's just my speculation. But I mean, it's, it's a very, very difficult. I think the, the way to do it would be to offer politicians as much money or maybe 50 percent more than they got from outside forces in the last election. Um, to you know, fund their campaigns in the next election, or we do, or we may, or we make giving them bribery deals, trips, lunches, dinners, all those presents. We make all that illegal. Uh, yes, but they're not going to vote for that to make that illegal. That's unless right. Unless the alternative gives them more money. So well, I'm saying, well, let's yeah, you know, as a citizen, I'm see, saying yeah, let's give them a little how more we're money. Go about to make it. it. Right. So because they, other than that, because self-interest and money. And so <clears throat> it comes back again to maturity, to education, um, to personal development for our politicians, I mean. Right. And uh, one of the things that Rick uh, Doblin did uh, was to uh, to um, uh, bring MDMA to the Middle East. This was many years ago yeah. where he would bring, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Arab people and uh, Israeli people together with MDMA. Um, and so. You know, I, that's not a pipe dream. It's, it's a valid and appropriate way to go. 
the pipe dream, the difficulty is how to set that up and how to get people to accept it. I went to Israel with Rick one time, and I'll, we went there to offer them MDMA for their PTSD because they had so many people had seen so many terrible things sitting in a restaurant and watching a body part fly by and things like that. And yes. the head of their Supreme Court, this lovely lady, said to put her arm around me and she said, Richard, we would love to use MDMA with our PTSD people, but if we do, your government will sanction us so terribly that we can't do it. And there was the long arm of the oppressive United States once again. And you know the whole history of that with Harry Anslinger and how that came about, a terrible oh, yes. debacle that we're still feeling. So, okay, here's my plan for creating. But I think we agree. A lot of people I'm talking to around the country agree the United States is sliding. It's not on a good trajectory right now in many areas. It does not look sustainable as a democracy and a republic. And then we've got this this wannabe dictator who's running for office. The and, orange Jesus, you mean? The orange Jesus. He's running for office. And if by some far out chance he manages to rig the election and win, we're in for the end, definitely beyond the end of the republic and the democracy. It's not a far out chance if I just want to interject because of gerrymandering. Right. And, that, you know, right. It's possible. And so here's my plan. I'm going to share it with you as a friend. Okay. We need a hundred billion dollars and not a big amount of money. We need it at the rate of five billion a year. For five billion, we can give every state in the union a budget of a hundred million dollars. And with a hundred million dollar budget, we start a grassroots campaign in every state in the union so that in 20 years, that's the five billion times 20 for the hundred billion total, in 20 years, that hundred million dollar per state budget maybe balanced so that some states get more and some less based on size and population, but an average of 100 million a year per state, we begin grassroots organizations that over the 20 years take over local city councils, boards of supervisors, state assemblies, state senators, congressmen, senators, and then in the 20th year, the presidency with a whole new political party based on amendments to the Constitution, not throwing away the Constitution, but making amendments such a, and, and changes of the laws, such as doing away with Citizens United, making lobbying illegal, and other things that create a just uh, a republic and a democracy. And I'm looking for people in their 20s to 40s to start this organization and get it going. I love the idea. Where does the money, what is the money used for specifically? Well, to is begin- Is it for campaigns or, or- To begin with, the Central Organized Committee, just like the less, fewer than 60 people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, 
they the, that group has to write what we stand for, what the new government will look like, what the amendments will look like, what we're all going to be using as our mission statement. And then the money is used for grassroots political campaigns to start taking over the city councils, the boards of supervisors, and then the assembly, and then the senators. Very grassroots, planned out in advance, a 20-year program with steps all along the way, and every one of the 50 states is coordinated in a, with a, from a central area, so there's communication amongst all 50 of the states with central headquarters towards the progress, so that when one state needs a little more help, they can bring in some money or some people from the other state. But Great the, idea. 20 years, 20 years. I like the fact that you chose 20 years because I do think a generation, it takes a generation to change, to educate, et cetera. And I love the platform, the mission statement that you described. You know, right now um, it takes votes. I mean, because the Republican legislatures um, in many of the states, um, you know, uh, uh, those people were voted in. Now, with the help of gerrymandering, it's true. So this is um, your idea would uh, create a third party or create a third a party, definitely a third party, completely different. We've got to come in with a whole new everything. We can't be, be be in any way beholden to the Democrats or the Republicans. Well, if you like the idea, please tell your dent tell your dentist. <laughs> He's a good guy. I have great conversations with him and I will. And others as well. I think it's a great idea. Do you have anything, I, you know, like a page that um, where your idea is, um, where I could copy it? And, and I haven't put it, it in print yet. I'm talking about it. But I've already started talking to, to a few people I know who actually are billionaires. So I'm right. starting. But I think you're right. I've got to put it in print. That's a, that's a good inspiration. Let's, let's you know, a, come a on. one pager or a three pager. Something like that, that that can be widely circulated and read. And you're wise, I think, also to um, focus on younger people in um, in this plan. They're the ones. So I support they, you. They have to lead the way. I'll send you a draft of it uh, after I Great. get it going. I'd love to have your have your input. And while yes. we're talking about drafts, tell us about some of your ideas about educating the general public about psychedelics. Well, I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is testimonials. Um, you know, one of the most powerful things that MAPS has done is uh, provide videos of the mothers of, or, or of um, uh, young people who've taken psychedelics, you know, when they were, in, you know, when they were uh, dying of cancer, or the, the, the people who themselves who were treated, who I'm talking about um, the psilocybin work now, um, the, um, those who are... Um, you know, who, who were about to die um, from, from, from end-stage cancer and who talked about, who took psychedelics, not to cure them, of course, but to change their relationship to death and the way they perceived it and the way they experienced their end of life. And that, that's just one area of testimonials. There's also, um, uh, you know, the different application areas, couples work, drug, uh, substance addiction, things like that. And so I think personal gut felt um, testimonials, um, uh, real life experiences are very, very effective. Um, 
you know, educating. Uh, yes. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm listening. Well, educate. <laughs> I want the Thank public you, to know who's talking right now. Well, educating the public um, is a generational thing, as you said, not just younger generation, but also takes a generation. And so, um, you know, I love your idea, frankly, you know, it, it does take money to do things in this society. It's like, you know, when, when they had, um, uh, what was it called the Arab Spring, I think, that, you know, they used, or any uh, revolution uses the tools of the oppressor, the fax machines, the uh, internet. You know, you have to, if you're anti-technology, you need to use technology at first to communicate that. So I think that, you know, um, your idea of, of talking to billionaires, although it seems difficult, it's not um, impossible. It's not um, unrealistic uh, if, done, if done right. So I think that, um, you know, the substances themselves are so... So the, the experience, as, we, as you know, as we all probably listening to the podcast know, um, is just such a deep, deep experience, deeper than really anything we experience in our everyday life. Um, even things that are super deep, like the death of a, of a family member or a parent or a divorce or things of that nature, which are so profound and so deep. You know, the psychedelic experience is, I think, deeper, um, more profound, more down to our very soul. And so, um, uh, you know, I think providing psychedelics to decision makers, to leaders, to politicians, um, you know, flying them to Oregon for that matter, you know, uh, uh, and, and starting from the ground up with the younger politicians, the Democratic politicians, the ones, you know, who are in, in, um, in blue states um, and, and a concerted effort to have them experience um, the, the profound and beautiful and uh, helpful, useful effect of these substances. Um, you know, they say during the 60s um, that, you know, uh, politicians Robert Kennedy, John Kennedy, are said to have taken LSD. Um, uh, Robert Kennedy um, testified at the congressional hearings that outlawed this LSD in, in favor of, of not outlawing them. And uh, so, you know, I think that process is not happening enough today at all. And that would be, you know, because after all, we are subject to the rule, if you will, the power of those who are, uh, who are politicians and legislators and regulators. And so perhaps a way, you know, a program that focused on those folks um, would be also very helpful. You wrote the book, Psychedelic Healing, 13 years ago, or at least it was published 13 years ago. You wrote it longer ago than that, of course. It was published 13 years ago. And there's been a tremendous change. This was a seminal book, Psychedelic Healing, for those of you listening. And it's a must read. Um, a lot has changed. The wave is, is, seems to be coming upon us. Do you see us going forward in a positive way this time? that'll take us beyond what happened in the 60s when there was this political backlash that just submerged us for 50 years into the darkness when we were not allowed to do research? Yes? Well, I absolutely, yes, indeed. I absolutely do. I think that the distinguishing characteristic, there's several, but um, one big difference is the way the research is done, has been done for the last 10 years or so, or however long it's been, 
um, the, that we have the NYU project, the UCLA project, which with Charlie Grob, um, uh, Johns Hopkins, of course, the lead, the, the largest program. And now Yale and others are developing psychedelic institutes. All of those, to my knowledge, are being done in a more mature um, uh, professional way. Uh, there's very little, to my knowledge, you know, using the supplies that were meant for research uh, subjects for personal use. The, you know, Tim Leary, um, brilliant though he was and wonderful though his ideas were, um, was not careful uh, in the way he um, approached uh, um, societal change. And that was his philosophy. I'm not, you know, criticizing exactly, but I think it, 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 it was not perhaps the most careful way. Although at that point, perhaps, you know, just, you know, hitting people between the eyes with psychedelics and, you know, advising rapid um, change, you know, maybe was what was necessary. But nowadays, I, I know the folks from the different research programs. And while many of them actually take psychedelics, it's not um, that it's, it doesn't degrade the um, professionalism with which they're do, conducting their research. They were beautiful research, beautiful findings, very, um, um, you know, very mature, responsible ways of doing the research. So that's number one. I don't think there's really creating a huge backlash. Also, you know, the, the use of psychedelics back then was novel to society. You know, when, when the Merry Pranksters went from California to, um, to uh, the East Coast to see the 1964 World Fair and visit Timothy Leary and, and, and team, um, you know, I, I, I remember reading in the electric Kool-Aid acid test that, you know, they had the, the truck, uh, further all outfitted with speakers and psychedelic paint and all that stuff. And they were all dressed kooky. And when they got pulled over by a cop every once in a while, they, they had no reference point for who these people were. They said, oh, you must be circus people because the concept just wasn't in this society. Right. Well, now it's very, very different. Of course, after the sixties and the rebound, uh, that's happened over the past few decades, you know, psychedelics are, you know, not as horrifying to the general public as they were back then, not as novel. And so there's, you know, everybody takes psychedelics. <laughs> I shouldn't say everybody, but young people, you know, it's, it's, it's common. There's raves, there's, there's all sorts of things. Not, this is not the research side of things. This is the, the public use side of things. So there's a lot less um, of, you know, a backlash that's going to take place, like Richard Nixon calling LSD, you know, public enemy number one because of the hippies and, you know, all that stuff that was threatening to society. Society has kind of absorbed or found a way to integrate um, or at least, you know, ignore um, the, the use of psychedelics. So I think the backlash issue is, is less significant, but the professionalism with, with, the with which the research is being done. And of course, then the, the way the FDA, the relationship to the FDA from these researchers has changed enormously and the DEA for that matter. Um, so, you know, uh, the, uh, as you know, the FDA fast-tracked MDMA uh, research, and these findings have been extraordinary. And back in the 60s, they could be regulated away by, you know, right-leaning politicians. Nowadays, um, the findings are, are accepted. I remember one anecdote where I think it was the NYU studies. They submitted a, um, a research paper to, I think it was the Journal of Pharmacology, and it was rejected as the results were, were fanciful and obviously not true. And so that, that's, that report was because the results were so good, so positive. Yeah. And that uh, paper was accepted by another journal. So now 
um, there's going to be legalization or rescheduling, I should say, of, of both psilocybin and MDMA. And once they're rescheduled, of course, they can be used uh, off-label. And that's coming down soon in a number of few, a very few number of years, one, two, three years or so. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think the situation is is very, very different. It's a genera generation difference. Okay. So yes, I'm very optimistic about that. So I have one last question before we end up. When I, when I got my doctorate in clinical psychology, uh, it, I was taught that to be a really effective clinician, I needed to have psychotherapy myself. And I was very fortunate that I went to a program where psychotherapy was offered to us clinical graduate students by uh, certain faculty members. So I had four years of, of therapy right there. What are your thoughts on whether people who do become psychedelic guides, whether they need to have psychedelic experience themselves? This is a two-part question. One okay. is, do psychedelic guides, do they need to have psychedelic experience? And the second half of the question is, how much education do you think psychedelic guides need to be doctors of clinical psychology and medical doctors, or do you think the guides can be trained? So that's a two-part, and you've got six minutes to answer. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, I'm not a big fan of the idea of psychedelic guides. Um, you know, right now, because of illegality and legal problems, there's really sort of three different people involved with psychedelic work. So you have the psych psychotherapist you're working with, who's not a psychedelic psychotherapist because it's not legal. Then you have the guide who sits with you while you do it. And then you have psychedelic integration, which is super important, of course, but frequently a third party, a third person, I should say. So there's three people involved. Once things get legalized and you know rescheduled and whatnot, there'll be one person. There'll be a psychedelic a therapist who's familiar with psychedelics. They will sit with you and they will do integration as part of your normal psychotherapy. So um, I think it's, you know, kind of a no-brainer that you can't sit with people. You can't be a psychedelic therapist if you haven't taken psychedelics. It's, the idea is sort of absurd to me. Um, uh, I shouldn't say that, that strongly, but it is absurd. But, you know, certainly they need the personal experience, the depth, soul, internal gut experience to be able to understand and help others who are going through the same thing. As far as the amount of education is concerned, you know, I'm not a big fan of... Um, of methodology, of, of, of um, you know, those sorts of things. I, you know, because uh, people hide behind it. Therapists hide behind that all the time. My work with people is to just sit with them and be myself. Now, the situation is not just like talking to like you and I having a nice conversation because we're equals, but it's more like um, it's, a, it's a, um, a, a exchange of value and they pay me and therefore I focus my mind on their work. But I'm not interested in methodology or technique. In fact, I feel that gets in the way. So, you know, uh, I actually, you know, I wanted to mention earlier, and it comes up again now, uh, Aldous Huxley's book, Aldous Huxley being one of my heroes, um, Island, the last book he wrote. And, you know, he wrote that because he had written Brave New World as a dystopia, and Island was more of a utopia. And in that, they, it's, a, it's a guidebook for how to use psychedelics in, in, in the public. The, the, People graduating high school, the, the young people graduating high school were brought into a church and they were given uh, uh, moksha medicine and uh, psilocybin 
mushrooms and they were given sermons just like you know the valedictorian degrees at, at graduation but in a different sort of a setting and they were crying and it was so profound for them uh, when people were dying they, they were given it as well and so uh, i recommend that book very highly to anyone it's a beautiful book and well worth uh, incorporating into our policy work too i interviewed a swiss psychiatrist named frederica merkel fisher and she told me about this unique training program in psychedelics that she went through in Switzerland. She, she's European. Each month they would meet and she would drive from where she lived, I think in Austria to Switzerland. And a group of all professionals and the leader would give each of them a dose of psychedelic. Let's say the one they were studying was LSD. The first month, they would get a certain dose of micrograms. The next month, they would get 50 or 100 micro, 50 micrograms more. The next month, 50 more. And they work their way up from something like 50 micrograms to 300 or 350. Okay? Yeah. And then they did the exact same thing with each of the other psychedelics. I don't know of any other training program like that in the world. It's a little bit like uh, Shogun's uh, pr approach, you know, under, underground as it was. And I'm sorry, I'm, re I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the um, wonderful psychotherapist who became a Johnny Appleseed. Um, Leo Zeff. Thank you. He yes. was my he was my neighbor and close friend. He oh, put all man. kinds no. of stuff in my body. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was very brave. You know, he risked his license. Um, to because the medicine was so important to him, and so um, yeah, so yes, and those sorts of uh, frameworks can be used now that things are opening up a bit more um, uh, as guides. And the Book Island, for example, and other frameworks can be used um, to help us move forward. And but I really do like your idea, though, of um, uh, a, a well-funded approach uh, over the over a twenty-year period to help change things. It's very, you know. I, I love that idea. Thank so you. I, I'll count on you to help me spread the word. Happy to. Thank you again, Neil, for being with us on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Love being with you. Look forward to meeting you in person so much. Yes, yes, and yes, absolutely. And thank you very much for having and me. And thank you all, dear listeners, for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we're on live every Tuesday at 9 o'clock. If you can't make it, listen to our archive because we are open source. That means all the programs are free for the listening. And we have so many distinguished guests like our guest today, Dr. Neil Goldsmith. And I'm going to remind you one more time to go to Amazon and get his book, uh, Psychedelic Healing, which is right here. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.